Hi, I'm Mo Maduro, and this is the Active Life Over 50 podcast, providing insights and support for your life expansion and self-actualization journey. Today's episode is visualization. It's not about manifestation, but it's a very important skill. In the last episode, I talked about goal setting, which is a staple when it comes to personal development, any kind of success literature, goal setting is a part of it. It doesn't matter what industry or what field, goals are important. Today, I'm going to talk about visualization, which also comes up. And again, as I said before, no woo-woo. This is what I can show you is happening from a scientific standpoint. Now, visualization is an interesting one because it's, it can be used to eradicate habits. It can be used to build skills. It can be used to accelerate your progress towards the goal. And I think it gets a bad rap sometimes because people use the word manifest very loosely without defining it. It sounds like this thing just got created somehow. There's other things that are happening with visualization. So first, let me just talk about some distinctions. You have associated uh, visualization and dissociated. Associated, imagine yourself on a roller coaster. You're in the front seat looking at the tracks going down the hill. That's associated. You're in it. Dissociated, you're on the ground looking at yourself in the roller coaster. And you can already see which one has the most emotion. Generally speaking, and it's general, but generally speaking, when you want to break a habit, you're visualizing the pre part of the habit. You're visualizing that as associated. So if you want to stop biting your nails, you're seeing your hand come to your mouth. You're actually seeing that. But then after the pattern interrupt, when you visualize yourself as you want to be, that's going to be dissociated. Again, that's a generalization. But if you want to feel emotion, you want to be in it, just like imagining on the roller coaster. So an emotion is more associated with achieving goals because when you have the emotion, you've got that additional dimension that's, that's helping you get there. Most people have heard the studies where you had groups, control groups, and they were practicing free throws. One group practiced free throws in the physical realm. Another one practiced free throws in their mind. Another one didn't practice at all. And the one that, that only practiced in their mind through visualization did almost as well. It's two kinds of uh, things that go on with this. One is if you visualize the process and you visualize the steps, like racers use this all the time, getting it to the point where they can visualize themselves making a lap around the track in cars, motorcycles, et cetera, ski races going down the course. They want their visualization to be like exact right on the 10th of a second. And then they know that's called, I call it struggling on the edge of ability. That's how you build these skills. And when you do that, you're firing the neuron. So they've actually shown where people who practice the piano like that or whatever it is, you're actually lighting up that part of the brain. So you're actually building the skill and apparently adding myelin to neurons just by that type of visualization. So that's visualizing the process they're doing. Then there's also visualization of the outcome. And that's not going to build the neurons, but that does do something very important. And I didn't learn this until recently, but it makes it more familiar, especially on creation goals. I talked about it before, project goals, goals that you're creating something from nothing or that's never been done before. You want to be visualizing those outcomes because as aid comes your way, as serendipity happens, you want it to be familiar. You don't want to reject it. And, you know, the 11 million bits per second that's processing by the unconscious and the, the brain, it'll be very easy to filter some of that out because it's not what we're looking for. So the visualization does a couple of things. One is it makes it more familiar so that when it shows up, we're there, but it also primes you and priming is huge. So there's a book by Robert Cialdini, Influence, I think is a very good read. And he's, he wrote another one, Presuasion which is also a good read, but I think reading influence gives you 
a good foundation because persuasion takes it to a whole nother level. And there's some experiments in persuasion that are also uh, talked about in John Barger's book, that's B-A-R-G-H, Before You Know It, which is all about priming. This guy's a scientist who specializes in looking at, at the subconscious. And the power of priming is beyond what you could ever imagine. And then you have cognitive biases are in play there. But in influence, it shows you how just by introducing scarcity, you can get people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. Getting them to make small commitments. Again, getting them to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do just by priming. And then persuasion takes it to another level where if a person just answers a question about gender or ethnicity, it actually influences the scores on that, that test. That research has shown, and it's peer-reviewed, so other scientists were able to get it. If somebody is given a cup of warm liquid, a warm cup of coffee, for example, they have a more compassionate response to something that happens while they're holding that warm cup of coffee compared to the person who's holding a cold glass. If they're holding a cold liquid in their hand, cup or glass, and that same thing happens, you know, how could they do controlled research, same thing is done, the person has a less compassionate response. Something as simple as the cup or glass. So that makes me wary when you're hit with probably over 5,000 stimuli per day from an advertising standpoint. We're filtering all that out, but some of it does get through. And because of the priming, they can prime you to what is going to get through. All that to say is we need to be priming ourselves. And you can prime yourself with visualization. Affirmations are also good. The power of the visualization, because you can get emotion in there, I think it's more powerful. And it also depends. I mean, some people are auditory learners, some are visual learners, some are kinesthetic learners. I think you want to take that into consideration as well. But for many people who are out there meditating, and I like what Emily Fletcher says, and, and this really made sense to me because I was meditating back in the 70s with martial arts, and I just never got it. This whole thing about being a great meditator by not moving, not thinking about anything. And what's the benefit? I, it didn't help my fighting in tournaments. So I never got the connection of meditating. I could break bricks without meditating or with meditating. So what was the big deal? Emily Fletcher says, you don't meditate to get good at meditating. You meditate to get good at life. Now, that's a view for a non-monk. Obviously, monks are Shaolin monks, et cetera. They're going to meditate for a different reason. But for the layperson, we're meditating to, be, to get good at life. There's another quote. I think uh, Emily Fletcher may have said this one as well, or at least I saw it in the book. Gandhi made, once made a statement that I have so much to do today, I better meditate twice as long. And that's when it started connecting for me. What am I missing? I'm missing something with this meditating. You see all these things that it does this and it's going to help you with that and improve this. And so where's the evidence? And the reason why it's very difficult to test, in my opinion, is because when you start meditating, you're first raising the floor. So we talked about those two channels, the upper limit and the lower limit, and we kind of bounce back and forth in between the two because we have that artificial upper limit that we don't break through. But when we start meditating... You're essentially raising that floor. And so your, your lows, you start getting higher lows, but your highs can still be the same. So your highs aren't getting higher, but your lows are getting higher. And you're building that floor. You're building up some tension. And eventually, you'll be able to break through that upper limit. So while you're meditating, you want to be cognizant of the fact that you are making improvements. So if it, let's say it's anxiety, you may have less anxiety that week or fewer instances. You have frequency, you have severity. So maybe you've experienced anxiety fewer times, or maybe when you did have anxiety, it wasn't as severe. It could be anything. You fell off the wagon on, on your diet. How many times did you fall off? 
you're meditating for a few weeks. How many times did you fall off again and again and again? In sales, you may be, say, how's it going to help me in sales? Well, you look at it and say, how am I doing with my yes questions or my closing and my, my timing? How am I doing with the sequence, with the transitions into the next phase, into asking for the sale? How am I doing with managing rapport? And you may, you, you may not see your sales go up right away, but if you're improving the inputs, eventually your sales are going to follow. Meditating is to get good at life. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm talking about meditating in the context of visualization, and I already talked about visualizing yourself doing something and then having a pattern interrupt and visualizing the other. So I would argue that about 10% of your meditation, if you're going to med meditate for 10 minutes, take about one minute of that meditation deep into it after you're about 70% in and remind yourself of, of what you want to change. Remind yourself of the behavior that you don't want and then replace it with how you want to be. So the point of doing this is that we're not just meditating to have this nice blissful experience. We're meditating to act, get access to our unconscious and prime it with the things that we want to do and the things that we no longer want to do. I like to use the example when I was talking about that floor gets built. You've, you've played Tetris before. Now you have to use your imagination because it's sort of like Tetris in reverse, but essentially the Tetris game is building a wall and you're trying to stop it from building the wall. Well, we're going to flip it. You're like the Tetris and you're trying to build this wall. But in the beginning, no matter what you do, the environment is knocking it down and you're just staying flatline. You have nothing happening, but you know, you just keep doing it as the Tetris machine. You just keep throwing those blocks in there and eventually a line sticks. And then you get two or three lines that stick and then four or five lines that stick. And then you know what happens next. Once a certain level of lines get hit, it takes off. That's how it is. If you hang in there with the meditating, it might take you three weeks. It might take you six weeks to really experience that. And that's going to have to do with how much of a buffer you can get between your conscious and your unconscious, how much you can access that powerful present moment, how much you can quiet down that unconscious chatter. But as you get better at those things and that floor gets built, you will feel it and you'll see it. And all of a sudden, it's like you can't go wrong. Serendipity is happening all over the place. You're in that field of infinite possibility, but you have a direction. You can almost see the outcome happening. So when you start meditating, and, and I think you need more than 10 minutes, but I would also say that if you're not meditating at all and you meditate for one minute, two or three or four, 10 times a day, you're going to be better off than if you're not meditating at all. Think about it like this. The conscious mind is in charge roughly 5% of the time, which means the unconscious is in charge 95% of the time. If you meditate even just a minute, one minute moment, four box breaths, if you do box breathing, that's four counts in, hold, four counts out, hold, four counts in, right? If you do box breathing, that's 16 seconds per cycle, four breath cycles, and you've got a minute. So you start with just breaking up your day and start building that buffer between your unconscious and your conscious. Cut down that chatter. And eventually your conscious mind can be, be running the show again. It's going to be a long way if you're only doing a minute at a time. So the point is you do the minute to where you can work it up to doing multiple minutes a day. I used to do a one minute per hour when I first started. And then you get five minutes. So I actually, I did three minutes. I did three minutes before my meals. That was sort of a trigger. And then eventually, eventually it was 20 minutes. And now I can do an hour if I need to and probably should still be working towards two hours. It depends on what I'm working on and, and the objectives that are out there. I think the more difficult they become, I, I end up meditating more. And it's one of those things that I know I need to work on that myself because I've have a pattern where once I get back on track and I'm comfortable, I stop doing the things that got me back on track. This is back to that upper limit and lower limit. If you want to 
make the big numbers. You have to keep doing, doing those things, even though it's working well. You meditate, you use the visualization, remind yourself of what you don't want to be doing anymore, replace it with a picture of what you do want to be doing, using the visualization to prime you and using visualization and emotion so that when that serendipity starts to show up, you see it because you're primed for it already. And then the other way of visualizing is visualizing yourself going through the process because you're actually firing those neurons. And if you fire the neurons, and especially when you're struggling on the edge of ability, Angela Duckworth in, in her book, Grit, and Daniel Coyle in his book, Talent Code, explain that very well. So you want to be practicing on the edge of ability, even in the visualization. Give yourself problems to solve, whether if, it, if it's on the racetrack, it's a difficult turn. If it's, if it's a trick, it's that hard part of this, doing that hard part of the trick over and over and over. And in real life, again, so on my one wheel, when I wanted to learn to ride in the other direction, so fakie or switch, I went to a park where there was a soft surface and I just did drills over and over and over, drills and drills and drills and drills and drills, the same thing, the, something that's very tough, not just riding. I, I could do more in 10 miles of drills than I could in 200 miles of just riding the one wheel in terms of building that skill. And within, within two, two and a half weeks, I was actually, my level on the switch was almost at the same level of regular. Drills is how you're going to build that because you're struggling on the edge of ability. And you can also do that while visualizing. I'll tell you one more quick story from, I started riding a motorcycle at age 14. And for those of you who ride motorcycles, you're familiar with the high side, but essentially you get too hard, too far sideways and the tires catch and you flip over. It's one of the worst things you want to ever do. It's violent and you know people have died because they get smashed into the vehicle like they're trying to stop to avoid hitting a car and they flip. In my case, so I used to practice this in my head. Now I was riding and never had never experienced a high side, but I back in the day we didn't have ABS, bias ply tires, you always were skidding. So you always were skidding. So you learn how not to let the side go, not to let the bike go sideways, but sometimes it gets the jump on you. And once you slide down to a point, it's sort of like a point of no return. And people say they laid it down. Well, I always felt like, nah, you didn't, you didn't lay it down. You didn't have the skill to bring it back up. So I used to practice thing in my head of how do you bring the bike back up? And there's a way to do it. If you ride on the dirt, ride a motorcycle in the dirt, you know how to do it. You're skidding, the bike's hung out, and then you let the clutch out and you give it gas at the same time. So you go from a skid to a spinning tire with no real transition, no real change. So you literally are skidding and then it's spinning. And then you bring it back up. So I used to practice that in my head. Just, you know, whatever I was doing, school, walking to work, I was always just practicing this, save the high side in my head. Lo and behold, when I first got my 750 Honda, I was riding full throttle every, almost got killed three times in that same first day. And I came down Hillside Avenue in New York City, Jamaica, jumped over to the right lane, and I'm flying, there's a bus right there. Who, what was I thinking? I guess I wasn't looking up ahead. I was a young kid, right? What, wasn't looking high enough up. There's a bus there. No way I'm going to stop in time. I hit the brake, sure enough, the back skids out. And I had a disc brake, but I just hit the back brake too hard. The back skids out. Now I'm heading right for this bus, sideways, tires first. If I laid it down, I would have been messed up. If I took my foot off the brake, I would have high-sided and literally... You're sliding and you literally flip in and you go head first and could go head first into the, the thing you're trying to stop for. So I did that thing I had been practicing. I, I feathered the clutch out and gave it gas. And not only did I save the high side, but there were cars going down the side of that bus. Remember, I jumped over to the right lane because there, the reason I did that was because there were cars in the, the second lane. I literally saved the high side and slid in between the cars and the bus. I'm 19 years old, 18 years old. It was one of those things where, whoa, 
you know, I mean, I would have been dead probably. I'm you know, pretty sure. It's a whole nother story why I knew to practice that. And that has always been on, that, on my mind. Why did I know to practice that? But the more important thing is practicing in my head, I executed that thing perfectly. Enough to save it and not only save it, but to guide it and go between the cars and the bus without touching anything. And uh, unfortunately, I kept riding fast that same day. I didn't learn my lesson until later when uh, I had a high side and I didn't save it. Fortunately, I went over the car and not into the car. Um, and then I finally figured out, okay, um, that's two strikes. I better chill. So there you go. Uh, visualization, you can fire the neurons. I gave you an example of something real in my life. And that's not the only one. There are other times as well. But uh, I have some firsthand experience. And there's some of these things you just can't unsee. All right, we'll talk to you next time, next episode. <laughs>